This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my friend and colleague, Professor Cristina Fotopoulou, who is at the Department of Surgery and Cancer at the Imperial College of London. And uh, the topic of this podcast is uh, the consensus statement on preoperative diagnosis of ovarian tumors that was put together by the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology, the International Society of Ultrasound and Obstetrics and Gynecology, the International Ovarian Tumor Analysis Group, and the European Society of Gynecological Endoscopy. Welcome, Christina. Dear Pedro, it's always a pleasure and honor to be um, having a podcast with you and to share with our uh, members of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, a journal to share our experience and our work and disseminate the knowledge. So we will talk today about um, the statement that we're just going to release in a few weeks in our journal about the consensus of the preoperative assessment of ovarian and tubal pathology. Yeah. Christina, this is a, this is a really monumental work. And first of all, congratulations for pulling together all of these experts uh, to bring together this consensus statement. So one of the first questions I wanted to start by is asking you, um, why did you consider that this was a, an important consensus to develop now? So this is a great um, question. First of all, I must acknowledge and I must say that this was a joint work with Dirk Timmerman uh, from uh, the IOTA and uh, ISRO group and together with uh, um, also the current president of uh, the ISRO, Professor Tom Bourne, who is in my institution. So our vision was to standardize and homogenize the preoperative assessment of patients who come to us with unclear and indeterminate masses. Um, and these patients very often are lost. We are lost. We don't really know where to send them, how to send them. Do they need to go to a, to a specialist? Don't they need to go to a specialist? Do they need to have a PET CT? Is an ultrasound enough? So all these questions where currently everybody um, just do whatever they think individually and how the moment is and how the center or the country works. We wanted to standardize and homogenize that uh, so that uh, we improve our care um, across uh, all Europe and beyond, of course, and mm -hmm. also evaluate the evidence. Yeah. And Christina, obviously, uh, uh, all leaders in, in the field, uh, as we look through the, uh, through the list of the authorship, um, but I was wondering how did this group come about and what were the criteria that were set Uh, for being a member of this collaborative group to develop this consensus statement? So what we wanted together with Dirk is that uh, we have all the major societies that have anything to do with preoperative diagnosis. For example, the uh, ESCU Society, the IOTA, the ISWOG. So all the ultrasound societies, the, the societies that are close to the pathway, to the diagnostic pathway of those patients. And we sat with the representatives of those groups in Athens in 2019 uh, together in a room And we were discussing how, what is the best way to approach it. And every um, society nominated its members and nominated the members for the working group. These are all key opinion leaders in the field. These were people who were chosen according to their expertise, to their publication, to their engagement in that, um, in that uh, um, field. And of course, to their availability. And uh, this is how, at the end, we really were very lucky to um, have nominated an, an expert team of key opinion leaders uh, in the field uh, that were very happy to work together in this, um, in this project. 
Well, great. And now, um, obviously, getting into the, the details. Um, I think it's appropriate to first start by discussing ultrasound. Obviously, it's one of the more common modalities uh, that um, bring uh, patients to this uh, initial diagnosis or at least suspicion. Um, and, and certainly, obviously, it's often used to differentiate uh, at least the, the characteristics of benign from malignant. But the ability to do this obviously requires a certain level of expertise. And in, uh, I was noticing in, in the statement, you categorize like varying levels of expertise. Can you um, tell us a little bit about the different levels that you designated in the consensus? Yes. So, of course, I think all of us, all you and me and all the people who started doing gynecology decades ago, um, everybody could just take an ultrasound or an ultrasound probe and just scan and say, oh, this is an ovarian mass. Mm -hmm. We have gone past that. And what we now know is that only persons or only people who are really specially trained and not to just scan, but also to know how to evaluate the scanning that they're doing and to evaluate really the images that they're seeing um, should be um, evaluating and assessing adnexal masses. It's, we, are, we have pa gone past the era where anybody, any gynecologist or any radiographer can just take a vaginal probe and, and say, I'm going to do now a transvaginal ultrasound. So IOTA was one of the first groups to really standardize that um, with the IOTA rules. And we have different levels of expertise. And we say that uh, the level three um, ultrasound level is is the radio is there is, is there are the the ones who can scan and can really assess in a very objective way um, and also with very dedicated algorithms the probability of malignancy or of borderline or of dignity of a mass so what was very important for these guidelines is not really to teach the people how to scan or to teach them what the rules are of scanning but just the importance but, but just to emphasize the importance of, of the expertise of the person who will do an ultrasound. So just an ultrasound is not enough anymore. It really needs to be done by somebody who is an expert in the field and knows how to um, to perform this ultrasound and to assess it. Yeah. And then um, you mentioned the risk of malignancy index and, uh, and something else called ROMA, uh, risk of malignancy algorithm. Um, exactly. And I was wondering if you can just clarify for our audience, like, what's the difference between those two? Yes. So the risk, the Roma is uh, the, the the Roma is risk of ovarian malignancy algorithm. This mm -hmm. is a uh, an algorithm that practically incorporates the the CA one to five, yeah, the cancer antigen one to five, the HE four, the human epidemial protein four, and also the menopausal status to assign women that present with an adnexal mass into a high risk or a low or a low risk group for finding an ovarian malignancy. This is the Roma score. Yeah. It's a very um very well defined and very well recognized uh, uh, algorithm which uh, can categorize patients according to a low risk or a high risk pathway. It's very important nowadays since we know how important is the centralization of care for patients with ovarian cancer. So that when a woman with a high Roma score comes to our clinic, um, she goes and gets she gets directed towards a specialized team. Yeah. 
So the RMI, the RMI is the risk of malignancy index, is uh, something, that, for example, that we use within the NHS England. Um, it combines three pre-surgical features. Again, it's an algorithm. It, it incorporates the serum um, CA125, yeah, like the Roma. Again, the menopausal status, but also it has an ultrasound score. Uh, here, HE4 does not play a role. Um, for example, in the UK, we have the RMI of, uh, if you have the RMI below 250 or above 250, this is like a cutoff according to which patients are decodomized to be referred and not to be referred. Um, it's it's practically, the difference is just how they are being measured and how they're being calculated. Um, what is best the one over the other, I don't really want to go there. It's about what you use in the clinical practice um, and also within the system of a country um, and of a hospital, which ones of the both are used. Important is that there is somehow an algorithm to stratify patients. I think this is the message that we want to uh, send here. Right. And then you also mentioned the IOTA methods. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how this might be uh, useful or of value to uh, practitioners. Well, the IOTA ultrasound rules for ovarian masses, they are, um, so IOTA was one of the first of the first groups that have actually gone into the effort and have managed to define and established a simple set, yeah, a very clinically easy set of ultrasound findings that will classify ovarian masses into benign, malignant, or inconclusive. Okay, the rules apply um, to masses that are not even classical ovarian, so it can be even a corpus luteum, endometrioma, a dermoid cyst, and they can have defined, definitive pathognomonic, uh, pathognomonic imaging features so that uh, patients can be categorized again into groups of, 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 uh, of pathways. Um, the IOTA is now a culture, I must say, and <laughs> I have seen that uh, <laughs> uh, by working uh, with a team. Yeah, it's, it's a whole culture in the way of mind. <laughs> it's like we say in surgery, primary debunking versus. <laughs> but uh, so, so it's really, it's, it's really, it's a whole culture. It's a whole philosophy. It's a whole uh, trend and, and education. And um, it has gone past beyond just the definition of simple ultrasound findings. And I think the most important thing that IOTA has taught us is that you need to have an ex to be an expert to scan. You need to have a dedicated training to be able to categorize patients to the different groups. Mm -hmm. But also, it's not just subjective, mm, I think this mass looks benign, mm, I think this mass looks, looks malignant. There are really very objective rules and criteria according to which every mass will be, um, uh, will be defined. Yeah. And um, now you also mentioned um, something called gynecologic imaging and reporting data system, uh, GI-RADS, and the ovarian agnexal reporting and data system, something called O-RADS. Um, tell us a little bit about how um, each of these might work or, or uh, which one offers a more accurate diagnosis. Yeah, so the ORADS uh, systems, they are uh, more from the rad from our radiology colleagues, whereas the IOTA uh, rules are more from the gynecologists who scan. The ORADS, um, I'm very lucky to work in Imperial with uh, one of the leaders of the ORADS system, which is uh, Professor Andrea Rockal. And uh, we are now also, also now very lucky to um, be helping them and be a co-author in a, in a paper that will come out about uh, a definition of, uh, of ovarian masses. So the ovarian at Nexal reporting and data system ultrasound form, this is the ORADS 
was, for example, is the um, is the it's a system that aims to ensure that there are practically uniform and unambiguous sonographic and MRI evaluations for ovarian or adnexal lesions, again, in a very objective way, like the IOTA rules, so that we don't have this subjectivity um, of, of reporting anymore like we perhaps had in the past. But there are very well-defined and very strictly defined rules according to which, through the MRI or through the ultrasound, um, a mass is characterized. The main difference is that while the IOTA rules are ultrasound, um, the ORADS is ultrasound but also MRI. Yeah, so um, there are no IOTA rules for MRI, for example. Very good. So now, Christina, let's. Uh, I think we 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 covered uh, the ultrasound as the imaging modality. Moving on to um, tumor markers, um, and of course, obviously, in gynecologic oncology, and often in general gynecology, uh, patients being assessed for possibility of ovarian malignancy, of course, is the CA125. And I was wondering if you could just tell us, um, in your in your your mind, how accurate or inaccurate is this market uh, marker in uh, in the evaluation of these patients? Yeah. So, I mean, as sad or not sad it is, despite the massive progress we have done in all diagnostic biomarkers and imaging for ovarian cancer, CA one to five remains one of our most key um, helpers in, in not just defining a mass, but also helping us directing where these patients belong to and also following them up. So CA125 is um, a tumor marker that is one of the, it's, it's highly non-specific, yeah? So patients with a pancreatitis, with pregnancy, with endometriosis, they will also have higher CA125. I think what we have learned, especially with Usha Menon's work uh, from the UK talk study, is that it's not just the absolute number that plays a role. Yeah, it's below 35 is not cancer, above 35 is cancer. I think we have gone past that dichotomized way of thinking. It's more about the trend. Um, of the CA125, and we have seen, for example, within the UK talk study that patients developed ovarian cancer over the period of, of their observation. And even though they had a normal tumor marker, they started with a tumor marker with CA125 of 5, and then they, they had a tumor marker of 35. And even though it was still within the normal limits, they still had a beginning malignancy. So the, 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 the CA125 is more is helpful more in, in terms of the trend. Mm -hmm. And that is how also we use it um, for the follow-up of patients with ovarian cancer. It's not something that is highly um, specific. That is why just one number without having its adequate correlation with clinical symptoms, with the journey of the patient, with the symptoms, with uh, everything that has happened so far is pretty much not helpful in a very easy way uh, to say that. So it's important to just put it always in context with the entire clinical picture and the trend in comparison to the previous uh, measurements and levels. Yeah. And then mm. now there are another two uh, markers that uh, we, we in our institution don't routinely obtain, but we often see many patients being referred to us uh, with these uh, two markers. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us your thoughts as to how useful uh, they are. This is the, the CEA or carcin embryonic antigen and the CA199. Um, should we still be getting these markers and is there a specific setting? Yeah, so these markers um, are much, it's are more um, uh, specific for GI cancers, for pancreatic cancers. So why they are important is to differentiate patients with unclear 
malignancy, whether it is a primary ovarian, a tumor form of ovarian origin or of AGI origin. So, um, for example, in the TRUST study, the TRUST study, which is the big randomized phase three trial of primary versus interval debugging surgery, it was actually a prerequisite. We had to have the CA and the CA1 to 5 and the ratio between the two. Mm-hmm. And if the patients had a, a high CA compared to, so if the ratio was above a specific um, number, we actually had to have a histological diagnosis before uh, randomizing them or recruiting them into the trial. So it is helpful for patients with uh, unclear origin of the disease. I must admit, we do it in our center, um, especially for cases where the radiologist says, "Mm, we are not really sure whether it's it's a colon cancer or Mm -hmm. it's a mass close to the sigmoid. Perhaps it is a primary colon cancer. Um, And uh, yeah, I have... I have operated by by not by mistake, yeah, by mistake. <laughs> in the last four or five months, three colon cancers. I must say, they all did well, and they were already two more free. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but retrospectively, we did them the CA or CA ninety nine, and they were they were high. So it's 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 uh, it helps. It helps. It's it's not really a big effort to just yeah. to also measure them. And I think in a patient with very high CA or very high CA99, it is uh, actually sensible or it would be sensible to have some type of histological confirmation before proceeding to a large debulking and strip diaphragms as a gynecologist for a colon cancer. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we we do um, obtain them in the setting, as you said, when there's a suspicion Mm. of uh, potential GI metastatic disease. Uh, now, exactly. how about um, HE4 uh, today? Where, w- what yeah. setting should this marker be used, and, and what's the utility and accuracy of HE4? Yeah, so I must say that uh, when before I moved to the UK um, almost 10 years ago, we used in Berlin and in Europe in general HE4 very extensively and very much in a routine way, especially in young women with endometriosis, in women where the CA1 to 5 was elevated and we didn't really know, is it because of endometriosis? Is it because of menstruation? Is it because of fibroids? So we used this HE4 to, um, to in patients with high CA1 to 5 to be able to delineate between a benign and a malignant condition. In the UK, HE4 is not being used at all, and it's also not being um, somehow funded by NHS England uh, to have that. So I have learned to practice without it. Um, there is no real black and white value of, of having it or not having it. There are many studies that um, have tried to assess its uh, it's, it's value in predictable probability. Joanna Braico from the Charity in Berlin has done a lot of work in trying to um, put it in scores of predicting survival after primary debulkings. And we are also now, now doing a, a study, the HELPA study, for patients at relapsed disease to correlate um, the CA1 to 5 and the H4 with the outcome of those patients. So there is a big trend in that, but it's not something that's being routinely used in all countries all over the world. Yeah. And then now moving forward uh, from the uh, markers, um, other imaging modalities, and I think this is the more conventional. Um, wanted to get your thoughts with regards to the initial assessment uh, in patients with suspected ovarian cancer. Um, thoughts on CT scan use or MRI, particularly uh, the perfusion weighted MRI. Um, how useful are these in this setting? Yes, so um, first of all, 
so we always so some very clear thoughts about that we always need a ct preoperatively in order to assess whether the patient has secondary malignancies has a pe has something in the chest has big lymph nodes has liver meds so a, a ct is important to delineate the tumor dissemination patterns and see whether this patient theoretically would uh, be okay for surgery or, or not the mri is more to character so the ct is not great to characterize a a, a, an adnexal mass or a pelvic mass, whether it is, you know, extensive endometriosis or is it a clear cell ovarian cancer, very often the CT fails us in this. And this is where we need the MRI, yeah? So if you have a patient, for example, who is 60, who has an adnexal mass, has lymph nodes, has uh, um, some diaphragmatic disease or does not have diaphragmatic disease, but she anyway needs to be operated because there is a large mass there and you will anyway go in and remove the ovaries and the tubes because the patient is symptomatic, has high tumor markers. Yeah, then the MRI won't necessarily massively add anything to the treatment pathway. However, if you have a young woman who has doesn't have children, who wants a fertility sparing approach, it's massively important to know 100% or as long or as much as uh, or as accurately as possible whether you're dealing with a borderline tumor, with a benign mass, with a can you do fertility sparing surgery? Do you have to do um, bilateral cyborgophorectomy? Can you wait? Can you do egg freezing before? So what we do in our in our um, practices that in patients, in young patients where the surgery is not really clear cut, um, that we always do an MRI um, apart from the CT. We have a very, very nice study currently, the MROC study, MROC study, which is uh, uh, being led by Professor Andrea Rokal, which tries to compare CT, just conventional CTs, with MRI, diffusion weight MR, to see whether one or the other can predict better operability, theater time, number of bowel resections, extent mm. of surgery. Um, so it's a very, very interesting study where we have just finished recruiting. Mm. And uh, it is commissioned by NHS England so that uh, uh, it, it shows how important this study is as a way forward to see what is the best modality for patients uh, with ovarian cancer in terms of extensive imaging. Um, so coming back to your question, what is a diffusion weight MR? is the use of specific MRI sequences as well as a software that generates imaging from the resulting data uh, that uses the diffusion of water molecules to generate contrast in the MR images. Yeah, So it is just a more sophisticated way, in simple words, to assess... Um, to assess extents of disease, and it's much more sensitive, um, or at least it's, it's supposed to be much better in delineating low-volume carcinosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, how often do we have a normal CT and we open up and find low-volume carcinosis mm -hmm. in a patient? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, Limits of operability like mesenteric carcinosis, small bowel serosa carcinosis. So the diffusion weight MR is, is much better than the, or is supposed to be much, much, much better than the conventional imaging. But we will have the results of our MROP study um, very soon, uh, I hope, so that uh, we can have it uh, in a more, much more objective way for hundreds and hundreds of ovarian cancer patients. That's great. Looking forward to seeing that. And now, um, you obviously see quite a number of patients with uh, ovarian cancer. And I was wondering if you can talk, talk to us about um, current status and data on the utility of PET-CT to manage patients with ovarian cancer. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that is actually a very tricky question. And I'm sure that what I will say now 
will not find agreement with many of those who will listen to this podcast, but I am, uh, unless for very specific indications, I'm not very much in favor of the PET CT. Mm-hmm. The reason is why. Um, so if we have a patient, for example, with a suspicion of ovarian cancer, she has, I don't know, she has uh, the usual pelvic mass, a bit of diaphragmatic disease, but she also has, you know, a disease in the chest, and we are not really sure, is it disease, is it not disease, bulky disease in the chest, yes, we can do a PET. Mm-hmm. Or a patient at relapse where we don't really know um she has an extra abdominal, non-accessible to 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 surgery uh, lesion in the chest, in the neck, in the axilla. Is it cancer? Is it not? Again, a PET CT is useful, but very often PET CT is being used currently to to establish and define extent of peritoneal carcinosis, extent of operability, uh, which we know is not the right way to do. We know that even PET CT fails in determining low volume peritoneal carcinosis. Yeah. How often have you or I have we opened up patients with normal PET CT and still they have low volume carcinosis in the mesentery and they are in a problem with an OK PET CT. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then something else that we can't forget is that we have seen in the Lion study microscopically involved lymph nodes that are being removed in ovarian cancer do not have a benefit in survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do I need to know really that this patient has a three millimeter, a big <laughs> petavit positive in the chest? Do I need to know that? Will this change the patient's management? Mm-hmm. Will I not operate this woman and remove the huge ovarian mass just because she has a three millimeter petavit mediastinal lymph node? Why? If I know that by removing it or not removing it, it doesn't play any role. <laughs> and we have seen that in the Lion study. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very interesting perspective. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, no, totally. Plus, and we know that microscopic disease, I mean, even if we operate our patients macroscopically tumor free, they are microscopically full of disease. Right. <laughs> and that is why they need chemo. That is why we never use R0 yeah. or we shouldn't use R0 in ovarian cancer because this concept of microscopic margins does not exist in ovarian cancer. So the concept of doing a PET CT to see whether there are microscopic lesions anywhere it's actually contradictory to the actual nature of the disease yeah, very very true now Christina, yeah. before i go on to the next series of questions i wanted to ask you because often and particularly from the general gynecologists uh, they, they often bring up the question what's the best imaging study uh, in your mind to differentiate benign from borderline tumors yeah, that is very tricky. I mean, we know and we have seen that from the robot study that um, even the histology is tricky. Mm-hmm. When you have patients with as you presumed borderline tumors that have a specialized review by a specialized center or a specialized pathology team, then 15% of them are the downstage or upstage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was approximately 15%. So it, it's tricky. Um, to be sure, it's... Um, Never 100% possible. I think the first step is a specialized ultrasound. Uh, the IOTA rules and there are IOTA scores that can say in real percentages what you, whether this mass will be probably borderline or cancer. It's actually v- very nice. It says 80% cancer, 20% or 15% borderline, 5% benign. So it's, it's actually a very nice concept. However, I, I think what we need to do in these patients is to always discuss the clinical scenario with them and say, listen, you have a solitary mass. We don't really know what it is. It might be borderline, but it might not be. Um, It needs to come out because we are not certain and it is symptomatic. We can do perhaps or mental or peritoneal staging during the operation since it doesn't really add to the morbidity of the operation to take 
a few biopsies so that the patient doesn't need to be reoperated again. We assess the entire cavity to make sure that there are no lesions. So it is important to still discuss all the eventualities with the patients, one-stage, two-stage procedure, fertility sparing, not fertility sparing. Mm -hmm. So it all goes much beyond just a score in an ultrasound in an ultrasound um, examination. Yeah. Great. So one, I want to draw attention now to this uh, last segment, which I think is very important of the uh, statement. Um, and I think it's best to start with definitions. Um, can you tell us what, it, what are uh, circulating uh, cell-free DNA and, and circulating tumor cells? Yes. So um, it, as the word says, circulating cell-free DNA is, is a free, it's, it's circulating DNA outside of the cells. They are practically degraded DNA uh, fragments yeah, that are released um, and they are free in the circulation. And um, they can, they can, um, they, they're just circulating in the bloodstream. They can include circulating tumor DNA, cell-free mitochondrial DNA, cell-free fetal DNA, for example. If, if you know, this is how everything started with all these tests, mm-hmm. where uh, pregnant women were diagnosed with with cancers during the the, the pre-invasive diagnostic, no? for mm-hmm. for the children. So, uh, whereas the circulating tumor cells, they are not just degraded cells. They are, it's not just free DNA. They actually, yeah, free. They actually tumor cells that in are, are in the in the bloodstream in the circulation. Yeah. So as a follow up to that, then how do we use this? How do we use this information? Is it helpful in differentiating yeah, yeah. benign from malignant ovarian masses? Yeah. Okay. So we actually had a very. We had almost. We dedicated almost a whole meeting in this because if you read, and actually I was responsible for this part of the working group of the circulating DNA, and if you read, there are so many interesting papers and data, and even that there are some algorithms according to which the the the, the load or the, the tumor burden in terms of circulating DNA burden can predict whatever it's but still nothing is standardized yet nothing is validated yet in larger cohorts and it's also very difficult it's not easy to apply in the daily routine yeah so we know how difficult it is especially for ovarian cancer to really measure circulating tumor cells yeah unless the patient has really extensive disease and but otherwise, it's it's not uh, an easy task. It's not as easy as, for example, for other malignancies. So the the conclusion of our statement was that it is a promising area. Um, we are sure that in the future it will have a much higher value, but currently it's not part of the standard routine. And we would never, for example, have a patient with an unclear mass, we will do an ultrasound, we will do an, a diffusion weight MR and say, let's measure your tumor-free, cell, tumor-free DNA. <laughs> we are far away from that. <laughs> we are far away from that yet. I'm sure it will come in the future in a form. I think it is. it will be much more important for the treatment of relapsed patients or, the, or for the follow-up of relapsed patients, to be honest. And now that secondary debulking is much more in place, at least in Europe, for ovarian cancer patients, uh, it might be a way to to follow up those patients, also with circulating tumor DNA or or cells. But we are not there yet that it's part of the standard algorithm of of uh, patients who just come through the door with an adnexal mass. Great. So then, now my last question is: um, How do you hope that this consensus statement 
will be put to use by practitioners? Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually a great question, and the aim. My hope, my hope is that we this 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 consensus is not to show people how to differentiate a malignant from a borderline mask. That's not a this is not a an educational book. What our consensus wants to state is the emphasize is the importance of the expertise not just of the person who operates an ovarian cancer or an ovarian mass, but also the expertise of the of the person who diagnoses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we are absolutely past the time where anybody can scan anything and just name any mass as whatever and send it to whoever to operate. We're just past that. And it's not just important that we have specialized people who operate, but also special people who diagnose, have the expertise of that, know how to scan, have specific ob- sub- objective rules um, uh, to, to determine the masses. And my my hope and our hope and the hope of, of uh, Dirk Timmerman, who was my co-chair in this and who actually initiated the whole um, effort, was that that there is an acknowledgement worldwide that we need expertise in the diagnosis of patients with adnexal masses. Yeah. Professor Christina Fotopoulos, uh, always so, so impressive. Uh, I always learned so much uh, listening to you. I want to thank you for submitting this to our journal. Uh, really monumental work. Congratulations to the rest of your uh, team members. And uh, always thank you so much for everything that you have and continue to contribute to gynecologic oncology. Uh, really very impressive and congratulations. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you.